Well, good morning, Arcadia. It's great to be with you guys. Um, I am Tyler Johnson. I'm the lead pastor of Redemption Church. Now, for many of you, that seems awkward because if you've come here uh, regularly at any level, you would say, no, Frank Switzer's the lead pastor of Redemption Church. I'm sitting in Redemption Church. But as Sean Myers said, Redemption Church is multi-congregational. So my role in that is leading of leaders, leading of vision, the direction of kind of where we're going to go next and ensuring that our congregations are strong and that we have the opportunity to birth new congregations. So we believe fundamentally that the local church is extraordinarily strategic as we all come together to sharpen each other to greater love and good deeds, as the Bible says, and that what happens in these places is that you are prepared, or the Bible says equipped, to go on and do that work. Now, there's amazing things that are happening inside Redemption Church that I get an opportunity to see, and I want to ensure when I get in front of each congregation, I have an opportunity to share a few of those and a couple of those. Some of them you hear about, and some of them you don't. So one thing is, is that we are aggressively planting churches. We We've recently planted a church right in the heart of San Francisco, Redemption San Francisco, literally from nothing. I mean, a very few people, Justin and Emily Anderson and a couple other people, moved right into kind of the lower hate um, Alamo Square area inside San Francisco. Nobody else other than that. They've been there about a year and a half, and they've started wor- weekly worship, and a couple weeks ago, we're up to about 100 people. Um, already doing some incredible work there. They've just recently developed a partnership with a Church of God in Christ right in their area and are doing huge renovations on that building that they have a long-term lease to be there to hopefully be doing um, significant gospel work in the city of San Francisco. We also have two other church plants, one in West Mesa that's a bilingual congregation going extraordinarily well, and also one in Flagstaff that's just getting to the back end of their first summer It's going very, very well uh, as well. These things don't happen without you all. And Sean also told you guys about the foster care initiative that we're doing. Um, Child welfare here has said, and it's been all over the Arizona Republic, there's a huge foster care crisis in Arizona. Your church, Redemption Church, along with two others, are the pioneering churches in this initiative called Arizona 127 that's now way more than three churches who are saying, if we just stepped up and took these kids in our homes and supported the people who take these children in our homes, we could really address this crisis. So I say all of that just to say, well done to you all, and draw your attention. When you walk out under the the black R, there's a a booklet here called Outward Focus Ministries that'll tell you all about how we're living out this desire to be a blessing. We believe we've been blessed by God and we want to be a blessing. Highly encourage you guys to pick that up. So today we are continuing in our series in the book of Romans. We believe in preaching the Bible and we want to go through it in an expositional fashion, which just means verse by verse. We're going to walk through the book of Romans. So today we're going to be in Romans chapter 4 and I would ask you guys to open up your Bible as we get engaged in this passage. And as you do, I am going to pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you and ask for your grace to us. We're going to talk a lot about that this morning. And I know um, of anybody in this room, I am in desperate need of grace. God, I don't know all the stories of the people who sit in this room. 
But God, I, on behalf of all of us, say that there are a host of things that we have done that we know we shouldn't have done. And God, things that we should have done that we haven't done. And God, we just ask you for your grace. We plead like many people in the Gospels as they sought to see you and to touch you. Uh, we say to you, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon us. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the wonderful things that you do because of your love. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let me ask you this question, and you can uh, do it with a show of hands. How many of you love payday? How many of you love payday? Come on, I'm asking again because it should be every hand in the room, right? We love payday, and we love payday for a lot of reasons. There is a basis to why we get paid, which is our work. And anytime you labor hard, the benefit of your labor is that check. And then from that check come blessings, right? Maybe the blessing of paying down debt or the blessing of going on a nice date or the blessing of that new dress or that new hat or the blessing of being able to store it away so that you can take that significant vacation or just the blessing of saving, whatever it might be. There are blessings that come from the benefit of a paycheck and there is a basis of that paycheck which is work. We're going to talk about that today. The basis of our standing before God, the benefit of it and the blessings of it. Paul, in the book of Romans, is speaking to this one central idea of all of the scriptures, and the word is salvation. Paul is speaking of salvation. And salvation, I fear, for many of us, is a term that we truncate. That word truncate means we squash it down and we make it smaller than what it actually is. So if you've been around Christians very long or you've heard of other people talk about Christians, they'll say there's this idea that they need to be saved. And Redemption Church would say a resounding yes, but we would say the world needs to be saved. That what the scriptures teach us is that the world is broken, that there was a creator king, you saying that, just this morning, praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. And there was a God who ordered the world in a certain way and designed it to function in a certain way. That we would live in harmony with God and we live in harmony with ourselves and we live in harmony with other human beings and in harmony with all of the rest of the world and nature and creation. But we rebelled against God. Sin enters into the world and the whole world was wrecked. Paul comes on the scene in Romans in the very first chapter and he says, the gospel, the good news is the power of God unto salvation. That the good news is that the king of all of creation has entered into history to set his creation that he made to rights because it was broken by sin. That's the gospel. The gospel is that the king of creation has come back to set the world to rights. Now, all of us in here, regardless of what we say we believe, whether you would identify yourself as a Christian or you wouldn't, would intrinsically know deep down that something just isn't right. That when you open up your iPad or your iPhone in the morning, or if you're so ancient that you actually open up a paper, and you scroll through whatever this is, that article after article after article are screaming at you to say, this isn't right. 
This isn't right. The world testifies to us that the world is broken. And we receive all kinds of promises that people can fix it to no avail. And Paul says it's the gospel of God that's the power to bring salvation. Now, the question that we're going to look at today is if salvation is that large, it's the king of creation coming to set the world right, how do we get on his program? How do we as individuals get in line with him and receive the benefits of his salvation? And Paul is very clear up to this point to say it happens through one way, and that way is faith. That's it. That we are made right before God because of faith. That when we look at a broken world, the Bible would say, as you see a broken world, your eyes should immediately turn upon yourself and say, I'm broken. So how do we receive this salvation? And Paul says, it is by faith. So today we're going to look at that idea of faith or that idea of belief. And we're going to look in that same logic as payday, right? What is the basis of our belief? What is the benefit of our belief and what are the blessings of this belief? So let's get after it. The basis of belief. The basis of your work is payment. But what's the basis of the benefit that we receive in Christ? The basis of being made right before God is grace or gift. Those are the same ideas. The basis of being made right with God, the basis of our faith is this word called grace. I have four children. My five-year-old in 20 days will turn six. So a birthday is coming. Now, if you're around young kids, birthdays, you know, are a very big deal. And the more I've had kids, the more I've realized that different ages, people respond differently to birthdays. You know, by the time you become 40, you don't even remember your birthday. You don't know when it's coming. People have to remind you. When you're a little kid and you have kids, it's not that different, right? Zero to two, I liked a lot because all you have to do for a birthday is tip over a trash can, let the trash all fall on the floor, and they are entertained like crazy. They just play with water bottles, they play with trash, they're picking stuff up. You don't have to spend a dime and when you spend a dime, they want to play with a box that it came in, not the toy. So you go, I'm not buying anything. I'm tipping over a trash can. That was my favorite stage. Then three to four comes on. It's a little more annoying because they care a little bit more, but they're still pretty easily pleased, and you can buy them something. What I've learned about five to six is it's like this far away from hell. And, <laughs> and the reason is they really know what they want. They really care about it, and they're not patient. So some 20 days ago, about 45 days in advance to my son's birthday, he says to me, I want a doctor's kit. There's this show on TV called Doc McStuffins that's his female doctor, and he's gotten really into doctor stuff. So I want a doctor's kit. And immediately I thought, this is great. I didn't know what I was going to get him. He just told me what he wants. I'll get it for him. The problem is he doesn't quite understand that his birthday is still over a month away. So he keeps acting like, where's my doctor's kit? Okay, son, you have a birthday coming up and we'll get it for you then. Okay, let me see your iPhone so I can look up different types of toy doctor's kits. Okay, I let him look the first time, then he wants to look again, then he wants to look again. Pretty soon I'm like, stop, I'm not giving you my phone. Wait a month, be patient. A fruit of the Spirit is patience, right? And I'm exuding the fruit of the Spirit as I scream this in his face. 
That's a fruit of the Spirit. You'll stop. Be patient. And pretty soon he keeps asking. And I'm like, you're on the verge of death, son, if you don't stop asking me about this doctor's thing. So then he says to me, I'll pay for it. And I go, you have a dollar fifty in your peggy bank. You're not paying. Nothing costs a dollar fifty. Like you might buy a piece of double bubble. You're not buying a doctor's kit. So then he goes, Well, maybe I can work for it. And I'm like, that's good. I'll just make you an indentured servant and give you nothing, right? Like that's the way I'm beginning to feel. But then I have the opportunity to tell him, but Yale, if you work for it, it's no longer a gift. And then dad has to actually think of something to give you for your birthday, because that wouldn't be a gift. That would be your wage. Now, this is exactly how Paul's argument continues after he's utilized this example of Abraham, that Abraham was made right before God, not based upon what he did, but based upon what he believed. Not based upon what he did, but based upon his faith. Romans 4.4 says this. You can look at it. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his do. There's a guy named Richard Lattimore that was a Greek scholar, non-believer, who translated Greek texts throughout history. And he decided, after he had translated many Greek texts, that I'll take a stab at the New Testament. And in his translation, he says Romans 4.4 this way, for one who does something, repayment is counted not as grace, but as his due. And we know this is true, right? If you're a hard worker, you do a good job. You deserve your pay. We don't call your wages a gift. Imagine that for a minute. You work your tail off, and your boss says, hey, I'm going to give a gift to you, your payment. You go, that's not a gift. If you work, you deserve a wage. Uh, Redemption Church helped set up a day labor center in South Chandler where there's a lot of day laborers there. And what was happening is people pick these men and women up, they go work, and then they drop them off at the side of the street, push them out the truck, and never pay them. Now, if you don't get paid for the work that you do, that's called exploitation. You're being exploited. But if you are paid, what you are paid is your due. It's not a gift. Grace is a gift. Grace is one-way love. Work is not grace. Now, we have to step back and go, well, why do we need grace? Well, many of you um, will hear this picture and understand that that's much of what your life feels like. So, it doesn't, in a year's period of time, we'll hear about three stories about an earthquake that happens or a tragic event where a building wasn't built right and it collapses upon people. Earthquakes are the one that are right in our mind because we've heard about a lot of them in the last couple years and you'll hear these stories about bodies being found dead. But in almost every one of these, there'll be a story that somebody was underneath this rubble could not get out, there's no possible way, legs are trapped, arms are trapped, they cannot possibly get out, and the only thing that they can do is cry out for mercy. Help! Help! Now the reality of that is, is many of us feel that way in our lives, right? Like you can't move your right arm, you can't move your left arm, and all you're doing is crying out for help. The reality of it is, the Bible says, all of us are in that predicament. 
unable to save and or help ourselves, we need outside intervention to help us. Now, what if it's that the rubble that's over us is because of our own doing? Who then would rescue us? Only one of great, great love. That one-way love is grace. Anne Lamont, um, who wrote a, a very famous book called Traveling Mercies, some thoughts on faith, says this. Grace is unearned love. Grace is unearned love. A wage is what's earned. Grace is unearned love. She goes on to say this. The love that goes before, that greets us on the way, it's the help you receive when you have no bright ideas left, when you are empty and desperate and have discovered that your very best thinking and your most charming charm have failed you. Grace is the light or the electricity or the juice or the breeze that takes you from that isolated place and it puts you with others who are as startled, as embarrassed, and eventually as grateful as you are to be there, to be where? Under grace. Tell me if that doesn't resonate with you because it resonates with me. Grace is the light or the electricity, the juice of the breeze that takes you from that isolated place and puts you with others who are as startled, as scared, as embarrassed, and eventually as grateful as you are to be in that place under grace. Christ brings grace. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believe, not whosoever work, whosoever believe would not perish, but have everlasting life. Christ brings grace. Grace is the great separator, if you will. It's the great separator. It's the thing that really divides Christ from all other belief systems. Grace. This great, great separator, Bono, has a very famous line in which he says, if karma is true, I'm screwed. Pardon me, but this gets the point. If karma's true, what goes around comes around, I'm in serious trouble. And he says, I'm holding out for grace. I'm holding out for grace. It's the great separator. So ponder for a minute your belief system. Is your belief system one in which that you believe, hey, what goes around comes around and I'm comfortable with that? If you're honest with yourself, nobody's comfortable with that. Especially when you understand that when it finally comes, that the word of God and God himself judges the very intentions of our heart. That when it's laid before us, we fully recognize that there are those things that we've done in our life that we know deep in our gut, regardless of our belief, we shouldn't have done. And though there are those things in our lives that we know we should have done that we never did. I'm holding out for grace. It's the great separator. Grace is brought, the Bible says, through one man, the man Jesus Christ, that the way we're made right before God is through a man, that there is one God, the Bible says, one God, not many. The Bible says that there's one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
and that there's one mediator between God and man. How do we get right with this God, this king of creation, who's coming back to root out all evil, to root out all dissension, all injustice, all sin? This king of creation who's coming back to do that, how do I get right with him? There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and man. It's the man, Jesus Christ. Now, that freaks a lot of people out because they think that sounds extraordinary, extraordinarily exclusive. And so you could look at me right now and go, this is what I hate about Christians. I hate that Christians are that exclusive, that they say their way is the only way. There's a lot of really sincere people in the world, a lot of them who are deeply committed to their religious faith and live very, very good lives. Now, let me for a minute put this back on you. The minute you look and say, I can't believe that because it's too exclusive, let me challenge your inclusive views and say your inclusive views are actually more exclusive or as exclusive as saying Christ is the only way. Because essentially what you're saying is if all religions are okay, there's basically two options. Either there's not really a God, so we're going, can't we all just get along? Because there really isn't a God. Or if there's a God, he really doesn't care what you believe. Well, what if I believe that our God really does care what we believe? And that there really is a God who's coming to rescue and restore all of the world, and he's doing it through his son, Jesus Christ. For that's what the Bible says, is that this God is a God of love. So much in love with the world that he enters into the mess that we've created for ourselves to rescue, restore, redeem, reward, rebuild. God has done all of that for us. Tim Keller says this, the gospel is news about what God has done to reach us. It is not advice about what we have to do to reach God. Hear those two words, the difference. It's news, not advice. It's news, not instruction. It's news about what God has done to reach us, not advice on how we reach God. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for you, the person sitting next to you, for myself? John Piper says it this way, God is not an employer looking for employees. He is an eagle looking for people who will take refuge under his wings. God is not an employer looking for employees. He's an eagle seeking people who would take refuge under his wings. What does that mean? Take refuge in him. Trust him. Run to him. Rejoice in the fact that this is not on the basis of what I have to do, but it's on the basis of what God has done. That's the basis of our belief is grace. It's a gift. Now, if that's the basis, what's the benefit? If that's the basis, what's the benefit? The benefit of faith is righteousness. Right standing before God. The gift of grace and being made right before God is based only upon faith, but the benefit of it is righteousness. Many of us talk about Christianity as the forgiveness of sins, but it's much more complete than that. Think of it this way. This red book, which is a Bible, but for a minute we'll say it's a book with a red cover, represents my life, your life. Say your name in the midst of this. Inside of this book is everything I ever thought, every motive I ever had. It's got the good things that I've done in life, 
but it's also got the things that I did in which people would look at and go, that's really, really good, but they never saw the reason why I did it, my motives. So this book inside of it has every thought I've ever thought, every motive behind every action I ever took, everything I ever did that I should not have done, and it's recorded all of the things that I should have done that I never quite got to and why I never quite got to them, and why I did the things that I never should have done. This book records the entirety of my life, and on the outside of this red cover, it says Tyler Johnson, with everything I've ever done inside of it. And this is gonna be placed before me, <clears throat> in the end, and before a holy God, in that moment to say, this is his record. Rightfully it's right, like the book of I rightfully it's read, like the book of Isaiah, who says our skin sins are like scarlet. Right? So it's a red book. This white book that has a little blue on it is the record of Jesus' life. It records all of his thoughts. All of those thoughts that Christ had that were so other focused. It has all of the grievings he has over people in pain. It has all of his rage over injustice. It has every thought he's ever had and every motive he's ever had. That the motive of his heart was continually the love of God and the love of his neighbor. It has every action he ever did. Fully recording that everything he should have done, he did and fulfilled to its completion. And it's absent of anything he ever did wrong because he's the only human being to ever live a sinless life that ever existed. When Christ comes on the scene to set the world aright, he calls to you and I and he says, repent and believe. Now those are words that many of you have heard a lot, some of you have heard very little. Repentance, sometimes we hear is just a turnaround, go the other direction, but that's not it. Repentance isn't just go the other direction. Repentance is go to Jesus, who is the opposite direction of everything that's counter to him. Think about repentance that way. Repentance is, at its very definition, Jesus saying, come follow me. And as you follow Christ, you leave sin. He says, repent and believe. The only way you follow him is if you believe in the end. I can't do it myself. And he's the one who holds the words to eternal life. He has the words of salvation. This is after Jesus preached a very hard sermon. Many people left. He looked at his disciples and he said, are you two gonna leave? And what did Peter say? Where else would we go? You hold the words of eternal life. Peter, Abraham that we've just exampled, soon we'll see David, believed upon God. Faith, when that faith happens, the benefit is righteousness. Here's what that is. That's God taking Jesus' life, ripping off the cover that says Jesus Christ, placing Jesus' cover upon my record, Christ taking upon all of my sin and all of the sins of the world, and then what's the benefit we get? Our cover, our name placed upon Jesus. His record is accounted to us because we are in him. Look at that. 
and to the one who does not work but believes, who doesn't trust in themselves, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The one who believes, who doesn't try to get himself straight, but goes to the only one who can get him straight, he is counted as righteousness. The exchange of the covers. Christ becomes sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God, Paul tells the Corinthians. Now, here's a couple amazing parts about this verse as well. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. You know what that means? That means that God is not calling out to us going, clean yourself up before I can look at you. There's these moments where I fail as a parent. And I'll just say to my kids, just get away from me and get it right and then come back to me. Thank God that he didn't say to me, just go get it right. You know why? I can't get it right. I'm in bondage to my own sinful will. Make me right, God. And here's what God says. He justifies the ungodly in their ungodliness. This is what Paul will say later on in the book of Romans, chapter 5. God demonstrates his own love for us in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It isn't clean yourself up, it's come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's grace that results in righteousness. And I want you to see this. Our righteousness comes from being in him. We are righteous in Christ. That's what he said. And the one who does not work but believes in him, the scriptures say over and over, being in Christ, being in Christ, that we are found in in Jesus, with him, Colossians 2, when you were dead in your trespasses, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in or with Christ. We are found righteous in Christ. Now, let me ask this question. If we're really honest with ourselves, some of us in this room hate this. We hate it. So let me ask you this. Do you hate this? And here's what I mean by hate it. That you sit there and go, no, I want what I deserve. That people should get their due, whatever it is. And if the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, then they should get death. Your judicial sentiment rises up within you. I want justice. And the cleaning of a record is not justice. That's true if the payment was never paid. But just before this, God tells us that he put forward Christ as a propitiation for our sin so that he might be both just and the justifier. Because you see, God has a dilemma himself. Because God is both just and he's a savior, his saving nature is in his very character. He is both just and a lover. He is both just and a redeemer. He is a savior. The reason salvation is happening and recorded for us of what God's doing through the book of Romans is because the Lord saves. That's told to us in the Old Testament in the book of Jonah, Jonah 2.9, that the Lord is the one who saves later on in Revelation, that salvation belongs to the Lord. So God's in a dilemma. How does he uphold his justice and be the justifier? Here's how. He takes sin upon himself. He dies the criminal death on a cross. 
He makes the thoughts and intentions, the sinful ones, the selfish ones, the ones that rip at the fabric of society and the fabric of our old lives and the fabric of our own families and the fabric of our countries. He takes them upon himself as though those were his and he pays the penalty for the sin of the world. And in so doing, he upholds justice and he saves. He upholds justice and he saves. Others of you are in here and you hate it because you think that type of extraordinary grace will lead to nothing but passivity. It'll just make people passive. They won't care. They'll go, it's a get out of jail free card. I just say a prayer and I'm free. How many of you guys have seen the movie Les Mes or read the book? Let me ask you a question about that. Jean Valjean has experienced ungrace in his life, extraordinary ungrace, that has led him to live in such a way that he feels like the only way to live in this world where nobody cares about anybody but themselves is for me to do what? To care about myself. It's a world of ungrace, so I'm gonna protect myself, and he walks in and he eats one night with a priest, and then he steals all of the priest's china, all of these valuable items, he puts them in a bag, and he leaves. Because why? I'm fending for myself. Because nobody else is going to fend for me. He's caught. He's brought back to the priest's house. And what does this man of the cloth do? But say, I gave those to him. Which means he forgave him and then he blessed him. What did that do to Jean Valjean? Did that make him passive? Even more selfish? No. Jean Valjean changes on a dime. Because somebody had his back, somebody forgave him and blessed him, showed him grace, he now begins to use his muscle on behalf of others, not just to protect himself. Hear this redemption, Arcadia. You only have so much strength. You only have so much mental energy. You and I only have so much. And if we spend it entirely on ourselves, I promise you a couple things. It will never pay off the way you think it has because God didn't make you to function like that. And in turn, you'll never experience the satisfaction that that sin, that inward focus, so presents itself to you that you will receive. You were made to be others focused and sin turns you inward. You use all your mental energy, all your physical energy on focusing on yourself. Now let me ask you married couples, how often does that work? Right? Like when you really think about yourself a lot and you're constantly trying to defend yourself to your spouse and get what you want, how often then do you get what you want? But all of a sudden those moments when God's working in you and you focus on the other and you love them, it's amazing how in seeking that other person's welfare, you too find your welfare. It doesn't make you passive. It's the exact opposite. It transforms you into an active agent for good. If you know you're loved, you're free to love. Most of us work so hard to make sure that we're loved and we fight for it to all ends and it just evades us all the time of that love. You are constantly the person who never feels like you're loved. Now, let me say this. When I was a kid, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I wish I would have. I didn't. But I'll tell you what I knew. I knew my parents loved me. And you know what's sad? I have a lot of friends who grew up in Christian homes that question whether or not they were loved by their family all the time. 
My dad didn't believe, but he'd tell me, tell he was blue in the face, I don't care what you always do, ever do. What you ever do, if you do wrong or if you never do what you think I want you to do, I love you because I love you, and I always will. The security that that brought to my life was extraordinary. And I would say it's one of the most powerful things in all of the world. Now, if that's true of your earthly father, imagine that there's a God of the universe who is screaming to you and or whispering to you, I love you because I love you. If you go out and you screw up in that way, I'm here, come back to me, return to me. I love you because I love you. It's not based upon what you've done. It's based upon my grace. It's unearned love. I love you because I'm a lover and because I love you. And he proves it, that in all the predicament you get yourself in, in sin, he takes it upon himself and he says, you are invited to be in me. To experience intimacy with the God of the universe unlike any intimacy you have ever known, ever. So what does that mean for us, Redemption Arcadia? Go to him. I don't care what you're in the midst of, move to him. The benefit is your right standing with him. You can go to him with boldness and with confidence. The basis is grace, the benefit is righteousness. Here's the last thing that we've been getting at, the blessings of faith. The blessings of belief. This is, reminds me of the, the prodigal son, but what David says here, Paul quotes Psalm 32, and David says, blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered, and it's not counted against him. This is verses six and seven of chapter four. Blessed is the man. That word blessed means whole, complete, made entirely right. He says, blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, covered and not counted against him. I think about the prodigal son. The prodigal son story that Jesus gives to us is this arrogant, self-absorbed young man who goes to his father who's rich and says, give me my inheritance early. I could care less about you. Give me mine. Eyes on himself and he leaves and he lives it up. Eat, drink and be merry because tomorrow I'm gonna die. Problem was he never died. So he ate and drank and was merry and then went, I'm in a heap of mess. He was in such a mess, no longer had any money, no longer had friends because he was self-absorbed that he was isolated in a pig pen eating with the pigs. And he said, listen, to be a servant in my father's house would be better than eating with pigs. And so he returns. Imagine the walk. He begins to walk the whole way by himself going, he's gonna kill me. He's not gonna accept me in. Maybe at best, he'll just make me a slave. His father sees him in the distance. And because of this, he had been eagerly awaiting the return of his son. Because of his son's belief that his father might just be a fraction of a bit merciful. His father sees him far off, goes to his people, says, kill the fattened calf. Runs out to his son, wraps his arms around him, kisses him all over, said there is a feast and a party for you, places upon him a fine robe, all the benefits of the finest jewelry, and he treats this son as the inheritor of all of his portfolio. He gets it all. He's a son. This is what David's talking about. Blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered, 
who his sins are not counted against him. Now, let's just take those for a minute and imagine their fulfillment in Christ, whose sins are forgiven. The day of atonement, the place where sin was taken care of is that people came year after year because they knew they had sinned. Those things that they did that they shouldn't have done and those things that they should have done that they never did, they said, God, have mercy on me, and they would kill, hoping that God may just pass over them and not hold them to the wages of their sin. But once a year, there was only one priest, a high priest, who would enter in to the temple, beyond the holy place, into the holy of holies, beyond that huge curtain that we see when Christ died was ripped. And he enters into the holy place, which represented the very presence of God. God dwelt there. And inside the holy of holies, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat that two angels looked at in utter amazement that it's there where sin is paid for. The high priest could only go in there once a year. Only one priest, the high priest, could go in there only once a year and he had to bring sins on behalf of himself because he was a sinner and sins on behalf of the people, that that priest would represent the people to God and God to the people, but it was at the mercy seat where sin was forgiven. Just a chapter ago, Paul said that God put forward Christ as the sacrifice of atonement, that in Christ, sins are finally and completely paid for. He then says sins are covered, and this is the idea of what happened in the cross is that expiation is the word, that sin was wiped away. And how many of us would go, I would love those things that I did that I shouldn't have done. And all of those things that I didn't do that I should have done to be wiped away. Your sins are covered. They're forgiven. And then they're not counted against you. This is the idea of God putting forward Christ as a propitiation for our sin. That sin must be paid for, the wage of it, the anger of how sin has ripped at the very foundations of the world that God has made. How sin has shook its fist in the face of God. How sin has ripped marriages apart and societies apart and made people do horrific things to other human beings and to babies and to elderly and Words can kill and words can give life. Those very words that all of them, because God loves the world, he hates. Because he loves, he hates sin and all of its effects. So all of the anger that is built up in God, he pours forth on Christ that God does not count our sins against us, but he counts them to Christ. That's what it means, blessedness, to have our sins forgiven our sins covered, our sins not counted against us. So what are the blessings of that? The blessings of belief? Well, imagine this. Paul will say later on that through this, we are brought into peace with God. Harmony, peace. That we don't live in this world of conflicted conscience, of constantly knowing, man, I'm a mess. I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. I don't know if I'm doing this. But you have peace and harmony with the one you were made for. That is no minor deal. For the Bible says that you were made by and for Jesus Christ. You are now connected to the very reason God created you. As a human being, you are more fully human in harmony with God. And forever you lived in a conflicted conscience and conflicted with the world and constantly feeling like it's just not right. Why? Because at the foundational level, you were in rebellion with God. But in Christ, you're brought in harmony with God. The words that the Bible uses is you're redeemed. 
You were in that heap of mess that you created for yourself and God bought you back. He paid the penalty, purchased you, bought you back, made you righteous and in him he reconciled you to himself. So we said before, what is it like to have someone have your back? Unbelievably empowering, right? Unbelievably empowering for someone to have your back. The God of the universe, through our belief, by his grace, has our back to the fullest degree. We're in him. We're made sons and daughters of God. What are the blessings of that? Remember when I was talking about Jean Valjean of like how much of your life is spent using so much of your energy trying to get people to love you? Now that may, those, that word may seem kind of sappy to you. You know, am I really trying to get people to love you? Well then let's say it maybe a little simpler. Get people to like you. Get people to approve of you. Did I do a good job? When you have kids, your different kids will respond different ways. One of my kids constantly does something and he looks and he, he's constantly looking for approval and affirmation. You know why? Because human beings were made to have that kind of support, approval, appreciation. Human beings are made to hear, well done. I am well pleased with you. We constantly look for it all around because of sin. Because the one we were made to hear it by God, sin separated us from. In Christ, we're brought back into him. And like Jesus heard at his baptism, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. When you believe, you hear the same words over you that Christ heard over him because you're in him. This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Now imagine for a minute you trying to close a deal this week when you know sung over you is in you this is my child in whom I am well pleased. That you know my identity is not built up in the fact of whether I close this deal or whether I don't. I don't have to fight to be loved and use all of my muscle to, for self-protective strategies because I'm protected. I'm in Christ. I now can seek to close this deal as a means to honor God and to love the person I'm trying to do the deal with. Imagine it in your family. Kids, that at the moment you're constantly craving your brother to think that you are strong, that you're great if you knew God is singing over me his pleasure. That frees me to not fight to be self-loved or fight for others' love because I know I'm loved. What does that free me to do? To use my muscle and energy to love others. It allows us redemption, Arcadia, only when we are centered upon what Christ has done and his grace is the only time we will ever to be, be able to be the way God really made us to be, radically others-focused. This is why we say we're gospel-centered and outward-focused. Only when you know that person has your back and brings you the level of security will you ever be able to live out your calling to love your neighbor as yourself. So we plead with God. God, let us know this. I want to end with a passage of scripture from 2 Peter that is astounding. And in this, he says very clearly, so if we have faith, what then should we do? And Peter says this, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. He says, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control steadfastness. 
and to steadfastness, brotherly affection, and to brotherly affection, love. It's only when you're living out these things will you know that you're not ineffective and unfruitful. Now, if we look at that as Christians, we go, oh man, what if I'm not doing those things? And then Peter says, and if you're failing in these things, it's because you're nearsighted, you're blind, and you've forgotten that you were cleansed by his blood. What's the reason we're not living this other-centered, self-controlled life that exemplifies this fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? Because you're nearsighted and blind and you're forgetting what Christ has done on your behalf. 2 Peter 1, 5 through 9. Now, if you're in here and you go, I don't know if I even believe any of this, please hear this. Christ dies for the ungodly in the midst of their ungodliness. Whether you're a believer or whether you're not a believer, hear the words of Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's go to him. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're amazed by your grace. Who could design this but the designer himself? God, your grace and your love are extraordinary. I pray that we would see it, see it to the point of believing it and believe it to the point of being deeply thankful that would lead us to a life of generosity, inclusion, and justice. In Christ's name we pray, amen.